Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Hernan Fernandez, founder and co-managing partner at Angel Ventures, one of the oldest and most active venture capital funds in Latin America, investing in early stage to early growth companies with business models tailored for the Latin American market. We talked about Hernan's career, what led him to leave the corporate world and launch one of the first VCs in the region, his take on the entrepreneurial market in Latin America, and some of the trends and opportunities that get him going these days. And that is also the founder of the largest angel investment network in Latin America and serves as a board member at the Mexican Association of PE and VC Funds. Prior to his current role, Hernan got his MBA degree at MIT Sloan School of Management. And now, please join me in a fascinating chat with Hernan Fernandez. All right. Well, Hernan, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We are extremely excited to have you here with us. Can uh, we start by hearing a bit about your background? Thank you, Miguel. Thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure to, to join you guys. And yeah, absolutely. Well, my name is Hernan Fernandez. I'm, I'm the co-founder and managing partner for Angel Ventures. So we started back in 2008 as the first angel investor network, at least professionally managed out of Mexico. And then we spawned to more operations in Colombia, Peru, Guadalajara, and some other offices. And currently we manage the Pacific Alliance Fund. So it's a venture capital fund focused on the Spanish speaking Latin countries of Mexico, Colombia, Chile, and Peru. Uh, this is our second fund. So first we had the angel investor network, which was moderately successful. Then we had a fund one which, you know, we simply rode the fintech wave in a big way in Latam, and I think the early investors in, in Clip, Kweski, among others. And now we are, I hope, more mature as a, as a PC manager and looking into different verticals, maybe prop tech or mobility or some others. And again, seeing, seeing a lot of traction and a lot of promise for, you know, a, a very, very much underserved uh, region, which is Latin America, and trying to track some of these global emerging marketplace where we see that, you know, some business models travel better than others when it comes to emerging markets. Hernan, you have, I believe, is a, a very interesting point of view because you launched Angel Ventures over a decade ago, back when there wasn't such a big boom of VC dollars going into the region. Can you tell us about your experience of this initial days? Uh, was it perhaps a bit lonely? And how did you develop your approach? Absolutely. Yeah, it certainly was a stroke of luck. I think you know, luck plays a major part in what we do. And, and certainly Angel Ventures was, was no exception. So, um, you know, I, I graduated from MIT Sloan in 2007. And while at MIT, I was you know, a huge fan of the innovation ecosystem, right? So... You had mentors, angel investors, you know, a patent office and ideas competition and business plan competitions. I was pretty much involved during my two years in, in different parts of either the organization or participating as a contestant, et cetera, in, in some of these plans and, and trying to mingle and network into the ecosystem, the, the, the development and innovation ecosystem. And when I came back to Mexico, as, uh, as you can probably relate also to 
know, to get like a like a comfy job at consulting and and earning some money after spending pretty much all the savings uh, go, going to an MBA, etc. I simply, you know, I, I think the consulting is a great job and, and obviously it's, uh, you know, it offers a great career, but it was not for me. And I was like daydreaming, you know, about, you know, the connections I made. And, and I had like also this group of friends that were asking me, hey, I might have some extra cash to invest here and there. And if you see anything interesting that's happening at MIT, call me over, et cetera. So kind of like that word like kept on, like while I was at, at MIT. And coming back to consulting, you know, I still was kind of like doing this as a side job. And at some point, you know, I was getting more requests or intros or, or work to be done on this side job, right? So at, at that point in time, and obviously that was like my passion, that's where I said, okay, maybe it's time to take a plunge myself. So uh, I left consulting like a little bit over a year and founded Angel Ventures in 2008, which as you can recall, was a very exciting time to, to launch anything in the world, right? So my two cents on what constitutes an angel investor in Latin America, and I think this pretty much goes as well for the rest of the emerging market the world, is that you know in our markets, there's very little or very few self-made entrepreneurs that invest into this asset class, right? So compare, for example, the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, NASDAQ is even more skewed to the Mexican Stock Exchange, La Bolsa, and there's this statistic that over 80% of companies in the New York Stock Exchange were created 50 years ago or less, right? And Mexico, it's completely the opposite. Like 80% of companies were founded 50 years ago or more, which should tell you something about, you know, how slow innovation hits our markets, right? So I guess that was like the first challenge because if you are in the US, Europe, Israel, or, or many other developed economies, you know, you might have a chance of meeting an early employer of Facebook or of Google or a founder of X or Y startup. There is a liquidity event, they get some cash and they're back at it with more strength or whatever. And, you know, it's very, it's very active to the point that 80% of angel investors in developed economies have been successful entrepreneurs. So that says a lot. When this comes to our markets, what we saw early on was that there were very few of these individuals, these like self-made entrepreneurs, particularly on tech, that was like pretty much inexistent in the 2008. You know, it was the very, very few. And, the, and obviously, when you're trying to talk into this, the second or third generation, you're going to be observed from a risk profile, right? So you will be like the risky asset. It's hard for many of these potential investors to see you as something interesting, etc., because they're more kind of the, in the mood of how to preserve wealth, not to create wealth. So that was a huge challenge indeed. But what we did find out was that there was this class, I would say, of, I don't know, people who in 2008 were probably in their 40s or early 30s or whatever, that back in the dot-com crash of 2001 or 1999 between that period, they were trying to be an entrepreneur. So you know, fast forward that to 2008, and, and if you were talking to someone at 40 years old at that point in time, they're more likely than not. They were an entrepreneur, and now they were a, back in a corporate job. You know, so they had a steady paycheck. They have grown exponentially in many cases throughout the organization because they had the drive of an entrepreneur. But for whatever the reason, they had to take like a full-time job, right? So I just want you to think for this, in this for a second, that 2008, someone who was in his 40s 
probably tried to be an entrepreneur 10 years prior to that. And he failed because of whatever the circumstances. And now 10 years later, he realized something. He was a very expensive entrepreneur, so he could no longer afford to leave his high-paid corporate job. He had a very solid, steady career. He was in his 40s, probably married with children, second homes, whatever may be the case. And this is where many of these people said, okay, maybe I'm too old to be an investor, but I miss the adrenaline of creating something. And these were the people that we actively hunted to become angel investors in in Mexico and then in Latin America. So uh, I would say that angel investors in these emerging markets are completely different. They're probably the you know the local CEOs, CTOs, CMOs of multinational companies, partners at top investment bankings or consulting firms, etc. A lot of expats for sure. But this base has continued to grow strong, and now that you know second or third generations are taking over family business, and there's like new blood and new ideas, a more tech savviness in many of these of these profiles. Uh, you know, I think the future is quite. I think the future is quite bright for how angel investment and early stage investment will continue to grow in Latin America and, and certainly is you know, so different from what we saw early on in 2008. That's really fascinating and sounds like this is exactly the kind of people that are willing to wait because you need patient capital from a VC investing point of view. How about the other side, right? So you figure out a strategy to find your initial investor base. How did you figure out a strategy to find your first portfolio companies? I think it's it's kind of like the chicken of the egg, right? Because the first thing that investors were asked is like, okay, so have you have seen quality entrepreneurs that you know are are worthy of receiving investment, et cetera? And, and, the, and obviously in the beginning, you know, in our early days at Angel Ventures, what we had was kind of like a, like a matchmaking club, right? So we screened a bunch of entrepreneurs. We had zero sectorial expertise, and it was like a very steep learning curve for us in the sense that when we saw a deal of e-commerce, you know, we had nothing to compare it against to. So you had to dive deeper, and probably we passed in that, in that opportunity, and then we saw a second one, a third one. And by the time that we got to a fifth or sixth one, we were then able to better understand and compare, you know, customer acquisition costs, ARPUs, LTVs, whatever, and we became smarter, right? So once that we became smarter as an angel investor network, et cetera, it was our turn to try to also educate a lot of our potential investors. And think about, you know, many investors at some point did tell us, okay, guys, I love what you're doing, but I know, you know, nothing about e-commerce. But I'm a big sushi fan, so I will probably not invest into an e-commerce website but I will invest into a sushi restaurant or whatever. So I think that was like a, a very pivotal moment for ourselves because we, we stuck to our guns and instead of being like a SME, like investment banking to pay the bills and, and get a quick buck and literally making cockles to any sushi restaurant that you can kind of like polish and, and sell it to this guy that was saying, hey, I'll invest into any sushi restaurant that you bring me. We actually, you know, stuck to become more integrated and learn more about like what the trends that we were seeing early on right and hopefully you know i think that this strategy was was painful in the short term but certainly on the medium to long term i think that we started you know seeing a broader base of startups that were you know becoming more and more savvy and and obviously you know there was like a couple of like lucky breaks as you might know for example 
Linio, which was, you know, the first, you know, heavily funded e-commerce platform in Mexico, uh, right. you know, Rocket Internet and all the story. And you start seeing kind of like the Linio mafias, right? Like, or these like mafias of fix entrepreneurs. And we had that with Linio, with Ojala, founded by Bismarck Lepe. And then obviously now you have like the Uber mafias and the Didi's mafias. You, you have all of, of all of these like a Rappi mafia, of course, of all of these like heavily funded startups. Now there's, there's like this kind of like schools. But I guess we, we were lucky again and we started seeing that early on. And there were like some early examples to piggyback from this. And even way before, you know, Linio, you also had like very few examples, for example, like InfoCell, Mass Negocio and, and some of the like tech companies, uh, very few Kio networks, of course. But again, I think that there were very few. So that's why, you know, the market uh, didn't take off like a rocket. But, uh, but I guess we were there at the right place at the right time and were persistent and cultivated a, a very good base of solid people that still up to this day are part of, you know, the, the, the project. So it sounds like you definitely adapted to the reality of the local market. And, and at the beginning, maybe you weren't as focused on, on investing in fully tech-driven companies, but rather finding good talent, right? If that's the case, what is the methodology that you've developed to attract and invest in top talent? I think that's a good question. That's a, a very good one, of course. When it comes to emerging markets, I would say that, you know, let's face it, like if you think innovation, probably Latin America is not the first place that comes to mind. And for that extent, you know, probably not MENA, probably not Southeast Asia, and with the exception of India and some other countries. So I think that we're really trailing far and behind from that, you know, like hardcore tech innovation play. That being said, there's pockets here and there within like certain verticals, like agri-tech and food tech, for example. I think places like Chile, Mexico, and, and even Colombia, and Brazil, of course, have been doing things in a pretty smart way. But I mean, again, it's not like we are kind of like the hub for tech-related investments. But what we did see was tech-related business plans or tech-enabled business plans. So, you know, like the likes of Rappi and the likes of Uber and the fact that, you know, Latin America is such a, a, a good market for the Ubers, Airbnbs, etc. So I think that this is a market that brings technology and, and obviously because of the huge consumer base that we have and how, you know, savvy they're getting and how smartphone is penetrating and e-commerce, etc. It's really a fantastic market to grow many of these companies, right? So I think that we did see a lot of talent start getting excited about all of these opportunities. We also, I mean, and, and probably that that's only the case of Mexico, but Mexico is a fantastic recipient for a lot of talent in Latin America, right? And even I would, I would dare to say some European talent. So you, you see that, you know, there's a French mafia and the Spanish mafia here in, in Mexico as well when it comes to startups. But you also have, you know, many Colombians, Argentinians, Chileans, you know, Bolivians, and you can relate to that, that are like really trying to make a business in Mexico, which is very exciting. So I think that Mexico has a lot of things going for it, which, again, I think it's, it has been quite stable and it's a, a huge population. It's a good market. It's next to the U.S. It's uh, the second most open economy after Israel. So there's a lot of things going strong for Mexico, and hopefully that, that will continue to be so in the, in the near future. And again, I think that has been like a good recipe to attract talent. And we even did this like informal survey among many you know, last year MBAs. And, you know, when we started, I think like the relation was 
one out of 10 were going to either start a, a company or you know join a, a startup. And now that equation is probably more than half of MBA graduates are either going to do a startup or to join what we could consider to be a startup. So um, again, I think the pool of talent is now quite abundant. And even in places like Guadalajara, where they're pursuing a very aggressive tech agenda to integrate with Silicon Valley, it's now very common to see people from Egypt, Iraq, Indonesia, India, you know, from many different parts of the world, either working or doing a startup, which is very exciting. I, for one, I feel very confident about the future for startups in Mexico, and I think that the trend will continue to be significant. Fascinating. Certainly a lot of regional and global talent chasing the dream and the promise of a very large and sophisticated market like Mexico. Now, talking about the fintech ecosystem, how have you seen it evolve? You mentioned that uh, you've had a couple of lucky breaks investing in fintech in Mexico, but what can you tell us about you know, the early days and has the story, the fintech story evolved the way you would have expected it? And I know you invest not just in Mexico, so you, know, you can comment on the region, I guess. Sure. I think when we were doing these first investments, Again, we have always been a generalist fund, and I think that applies for most BC funds in Latam, right? It's not like you are, I don't know, Rick Hoffman and you, you know, or Mark Andreessen, where, where you basically, you know, have been a very super successful founder, and then you found like a, like a BC fund, right? Like, that's still not the case in Latin America, with probably the exception of Kasek or somebody else, right? So we were generalists at that time, and we started seeing this trend of, you know, founders that wanted to take things that were the sole domain of banks, right? And we started seeing the credentials and everything, and we were, like, very excited about, the, you know, the opportunity, and it was, like, massive, etc. So I guess, like, that's part of, like, who we are on our mantra, is that if you're a generalist, then your job is to actually be the dumbest person in the room. And that's precisely what we did. So with through our network of angel investors, we started seeing, which by that time was probably nearing a couple of hundred, you know, we started seeing who were the ones that probably could give us a hand in evaluating many of these fintech opportunities, which again, we had no idea that this was like something brewing in front of our eyes, right? So obviously we recruited a couple of executives from banks. We recruited a senior guy that worked for a payment processing firm, you know, a couple of, a couple of guys from some of the big card issuers, et cetera. To, to try to assemble this group or this entire team that could help us evaluate and potentially invest into some of these startups, right? And that, that we did, we created a fintech committee. I would say it was probably the first one in Mexico to look into these opportunities. And yeah, we did invest early on in considered two of the more successful fintech startups in Mexico. And it was in big part because, you know, we were early to spot a trend and to get the right guys in the room to make a decision. And um, what I would say is that one of these founders, you know, I will never forget this conversation, but one of these founders who shall remain unnamed at some point was, you know, you're probably going to figure this one out, but they were like doing this like payment, like payment service, right? And at some point, one of the, the participants asked him, okay, so how will you prevail over the bank if this is something that a bank could potentially do in a matter of weeks, months? And the founder's answer was, you know, very clear. It's precisely because they're a bank, right? And I think it's, that's a very interesting thing when it comes to startups, right? That 
we are assuming that the big corporates, because of the money that they can invest and the salaries that they can pay, et cetera, they're always going to get the right talent and they will have the talent as motivated as a startup. And that assumption is like dead wrong. Because we have seen this, this over and over that, yeah, you can hire amazing people and you can you know, pay them all their salary and bonuses and expenses. But the guy is probably going to work you know, nine to six, right? Maybe he'll give you a couple of extra hours. Maybe he'll answer an email in the weekend. But for startups and for founders, you know, it's not a full-time job. It's a full-life job. These guys just outperform the banks, right? And banks are slow to move and there's like so many politics inside. And they're trying to do like so many projects at, at the time. And also Mexico had an interesting particularity, which is that at that point in time, out of the top five banks, only one was Mexican. And probably at that point in time was maybe number four, or number five, right? So any big decision or anything that will require you to move fast, have to clear the internal Mexican obstacles, et cetera, then make it to Spain or to the US or to somewhere else, and then go travel back to Mexico. So, you know, the flow of information, the time that you can, you know, just like cut out of many of these processes was crucial. And that's why, you know, in many of these different verticals, the banks took a beating and are taking a beating and will continue to take a beating. Having worked at two large banks, we always used to say that banks are great at hiring talent, but not great at retaining talent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, working in a bank will always look good on your resume, right? But, and obviously, you know, the paycheck, dude, it's glorious, right? Told them to have all that money, et cetera. But, you know, I don't think that they are necessarily, if they don't have like a startup culture, they're necessarily the best or the most exciting thing that you wake up in a month and say, yeah, I'm going to conquer my world or my vertical. That's probably how a fintech, you know, thinks every Monday where probably a bank employee is like, yeah, I have to go to, you know, team meeting at 9 a.m. and then report back to my boss and then, you know, fill out this expense form. So I, I'm just like, you know, fantasizing about how this is probably like day to day. But one thing that I am certain, and obviously this, this is not only applied to banks, is that the startup culture is something that like very difficult to imitate. And particularly in Latin America, you know, there's so many family-owned traditional companies that think that they will be able to get the right people with just with a paycheck, right? But I think that they are grossly underestimating the power of being a part owner or being a founder of, you know, just focusing on taking one problem that keeps you up at night. And I think that that's a recipe for a good startup. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays. But yeah, one of our startups now is the largest credit card transactor in Mexico, period, right? overtaking every single one of the banks. And one of them is the largest online lender in Mexico with, you know, an internal processing and risk assessment system that I'm pretty sure like most banks will envy. And they start these companies from scratch and, and obviously, you know, investments of tens or in some cases, even hundreds of millions of dollars. But, you know, banks did not have that short of cash to develop these systems or develop these solutions, right? And uh, obviously that, that will continue to be the case. And, uh, and the more, you know, uh, cocky and snobby uh, that, that banks are towards, you know, fintech, then they're in for, you know, a good ride or surprises, which, you know, my last point that I will make about this is that I think like startups are taking notice because fintech has a very particular issue. And that is that most fintechs need to go through a bank to actually enable their solutions, right? 
So banks are kind of like jury and they play two roles. They're right, kind of right. they're judge and jury, right? Because if you're a fintech startup and you need to, you know, get savings or whatever, you need to go through the banking system and work your bank account. And more frequent than not, many of these banks are feeling the pain and they try to play dirty with some of fintechs. And obviously, you know, the market is taking notice and we understand that the Mexican version of ACC and the antitrust is are also taking a look into this. Because imagine if you're a startup, right? And you are like creating X or Y solution and you process everything through your bank and your bank takes notice. So it's easy for a bank to try to emulate a solution or replicate a solution, um, which again, there's certain limitations and that could potentially be understood to be fair. But the more aggressive version of this is when a bank actually, you know, takes off your bank accounts and just claims an internal procedure and probably leaves you without the capacity to receive funds for you know two or three weeks. That can kill a startup, right? And then the bank can usually can go back to say, oh, sorry, or bad, bad procedure, et cetera. But three weeks of allowing a company, a startup to receive funds or to do the core business can kill a startup, right? So yeah, I think that there's a couple of examples that every now and then come out in the, in the Mexican BC ecosystem that this is happening. And obviously, you know, the first kind of like thing that we would like to see in the startup is that they're working with many banks. You know, you don't want to, to be subject to just relationships with one bank, of course. But again, this is, this is something that it's a very interesting competitive dynamic because, again, you need banks to do business as a fintech and, and LATAM still has a long way to go in terms of fair play. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. How about the road ahead uh, when it comes to fintech? Are there any verticals or trends that you and the Angel Ventures team are specifically looking at? There are certainly a lot of trends. I think it's, I don't know how to call it, but you know, I, I think like the first wave of fintech was like very easy to spot, you know? Oh, this is payments. This is lending. This is, I don't know, POS or whatever, right? Now I think that we're seeing a lot of companies that are embedding fintech as a solution, but not necessarily like a pure fintech play. For example, property tech, right? They, we have a very successful platform on property tech and it's doing fantastically well. And now they're branching out into some like fintech services because again, they have so much data and their tenants and renters are paying so much on the platform that it will be silly not to think, you know, outside of the box and, and start coming with, you know, more financial prone solutions. We're also seeing, for example, logistics, cargo, and mobility solutions that are like more and more appealing towards fintech, right? So, I mean, it's, it's a matter of understanding like the value chain of, of any different, you know, industries. And whenever like money is involved, then there's probably a pain point or a hassle that is currently, you know, done probably lousily by local banks or, you know, by the banking system as a whole, et cetera. And then there might be like a, like a company that is trying to in, innovate on that matter and taking that part of the pie or a, a startup that, again, is trying to provide, you know, a better experience or lessen the friction points that there currently exist with banks. So I think any one of those is, again, it's not like a clear cut to spot on today, but you will see that I think that the new wave of fintech is coming through that. And it's not going to be just like a new, you know, wallet or a new challenger bank, which now... There's so many challenging banks out there, which, you know, it's hard to see who they're really challenging, right? It may be, end up being just like other BC funds for money. But again, I think that many verticals have been like tried and true. And, and you can now see that there's one or two clear winners per market into one of these, each one of these verticals. 
But I think now that now the new thing is, you know, how fintech is evolving towards tapping into different verticals again, prop tech, uh, mobility, retail solutions, etc. Yeah, and, and I guess you can see that a larger scale as well. One of the guests that we've had was uh, Hernan Casa from Casic Ventures, and he's not only founder of Casic Ventures, but as you will know, he also founded Mercado Libre. And something that he was mentioning is how the fintech side of Mercado Libre, Mercado Pago, has become over 50% of the company. So a company that started in commerce is now really a fintech company. Same goes with, for Rappi and others. Yeah, I'm certainly not surprised and goes along the lines of, you know, the what, what we were mentioning that there is nowadays a lot of like companies that are like branching out to fintech and they will be hard to recognize as fintech companies, you know, from a first glance, but dig a little bit deeper and you will find, you know, an amazing fintech platform that's pretty much like running the core of operations. And what you mentioned about like Mercado Libre, it's certainly the same thing for Alibaba. A lot of people might not know that. I'm not sure if that's still the case today, but Alibaba at some point was making more money from their fintech solutions. You know, they're kind of like enabling Chinese producers to land bill of credits and the bill of ladings to suppliers and consumers in different parts of the world was a huge part of Alibaba's business. Right. So, yeah, that's I mean, as long as there is money in a part of the chain, then potentially there's a fintech willing to disrupt it or, you know, the company can transform or can adapt to become themselves a fintech solution. Now, Hernan, you've been investing for you know over a dozen years. What's your outlook for the future of VC in the region for the coming years? And what is venture capital in Latin America missing? What can be done better? Well, I think that it's, what can be done better? Certainly exits. I think that the problems that we are seeing with like smaller markets is that they're very fragmented and you need to piggyback out of Brazil, which obviously has the right size and it has a, a pretty good massive structure of their own and, and probably better capital markets than the rest of the region. But otherwise, even countries like Mexico, and, and Mexico will by far and large be the second market, you know, the idea is to start seeing more consolidation of these markets. So, for example, Corner Shop Rappi are, are examples that I really like to see how they evolve in the sense that, you know, Rappi was made in Colombia, but their breakout market was Mexico, right? Corner Shop was made in Chile, breakout market was Mexico. So this integration of, you know, smaller markets, I think it's, uh, it's, it's something that startups are taking notice. And now that, that's why, you know, our fund is actually looking to invest in the Pacific Alliance countries, right? Because we see this corridor of Mexico, Chile, Colombia, and Peru. It has over 230 million people, an economy of over 2.5 trillion. So it's larger than Brazil, you know, in any metric or any KPI that you, you look at it. And there's, there's by far and large a better integration among these four countries. A lot of newcomers will probably, and actually this happened interesting enough, back in 2009, they went into Brazil and they funded back in the day with, you know, rounds of 30, 40 million, a lot of like Brazilian companies with the idea that they could expand to Latin America. There's not one single company from that vintage that is probably, I'm not sure if alive today, but certainly did not make a meaningful business in the rest of Latin America. So now obviously we're seeing that picture play again with Brazilian companies having, you know, way greater, you know, war chests for this conquest of Latin America. Let's see how it plays. Obviously, you have like Nubanks, 
and you have like creditas, which funny, interestingly enough, were not funded by Brazilians or only Brazilian teams. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see if they can actually tackle into the Mexican market, which has been quite elusive, which obviously has also been that way, the other way around. There's not you know, many Mexican companies or companies from other parts of Latin America going into Brazil. So that corridor of Mexico, Chile, Colombia, Peru, potentially Argentina, even though that Argentina obviously as a country has its ups and downs, I think it's also very appealing and I think it's very much underlooked. You know, I think that governments, they have a lot of very interesting uh, uh, plans when it comes to fostering an innovation ecosystem in within their countries, right? The problem is that, I mean, even like most of these BC funds will take between 10 years to even more to give some promising results. So this goes beyond any governmental administration that you can think of, right? So most of these programs are being shut down or significantly, you know, maybe becoming smaller. So I do see that there will be a lot of consolidation when it comes to funds. There will be many seed funds that were created probably in the past uh, few years. And now, you know, they will not have a good story to tell to raise a second fund. So I think that, you know, in Mexico, at least in 2018, 2017, there was apparently like over 50 BC funds, right? Ranging from very early stage to micro BC to proper BCs. And I think in the few next few years to come, there's probably going to be end up being between 15 to 20. So CBC will be an interesting play to see how it happens in Latin America as well. They have been last entrance, obviously, except for a few notable exceptions. But I think that we will continue to see more and more corporate venture capital. But like pure purebred like BCs, I think that obviously there's some managers in Brazil that I think that are, are really well off. You obviously have CASEC, which I think is like the, the regional leader. Mexico, interestingly enough, I think it's still unclaimed space, right? Obviously, I think that there's a group, a handful of managers, and we're optimistic and, and want to count or, or put our name in the habit there have had a good story to tell and hopefully, you know, continue to grow as managers and have more success stories. And Mexico, I would say, is like a much more collegiate approach between fund managers than, than perhaps other countries or regions. So I'm pretty bullish that, you know, again, there will probably be less managers, but the managers that are able to do a good story and to perform well and execute exits will see, you know, a boost in AUM. Fantastic. Well, Hernan, this has been extremely interesting and illustrative. Before we go, can you tell us a little bit about your hobbies? We always like to ask our guests about some of their activities and hobbies that they do outside of work. Oh, absolutely. Well, I would say pretty much everything that COVID is killing was my hobby. So travel is a good part of it. You know, I've been over to over 70 countries now and, and even my five-year-old son has been to over 25 so yeah it, you know traveling was was a big part of what i really love to do and hopefully we can retake that early on you know i like sports but you know i'm more of a watcher than a doer to be honest love watching you know soccer and the uh, and movies and things like that i'm a huge lego fan yes that's true my office is like full of the lego architecture collection and uh and yeah whenever there's, there's like a a new set of that series, I'm first in line. And yeah, I would say I come from a family of collectors, right? So uh, I'm an 80s boy. So yeah, anything that has to do with He-Man or, or even Thundercats to a certain extent, I'm always interested, kind of like geeky on that end. And video games, I would say, you know, 
still have my PS4 and, and looking forward to PS5. And, and obviously, I, I don't have enough time to spend with, you know, between family and work, etc. on video games. But whenever there's like a can't miss game, I, I do try to give it proper time to, to enjoy the experience. Fantastic. And, and I mean this in the best way possible, but sounds like MIT was the right school for you. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, it's uh, friends for life. And I, I have been able to to get so much out of MIT. You know, in our investment community today, we have an MIT professor, Camilo, my partner is from MIT. Other people that have been influential at Angel Ventures uh, are from MIT as well. So, you know, it's a, certainly, yeah, I wouldn't have enough types to thank MIT enough. And, and yeah, super, super proud Sloney there. Outstanding. Well, Arnan, thank you again for joining us. Uh, really interesting and a real treat to have you on the show. And, and we look forward to seeing a lot more success to come from you and to see the region continue to develop. No, thank you very much, Miguel. It's been, it's been a pleasure to join you on the audience. I hope you get some interesting insights and put a little bit more on perspective in Latin America, which again, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for founders to come and start a company, for investors to look into the region, for corporates to scout for talent and for, you know, acquisition opportunities. So yeah, I think that the opportunity is abundant and I'm happy to put in a good word. Thank you, Hernan. Take care, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.